Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 206- Four five one four two two zero. GreatNorthernElectric.com serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. Two zero six eight four two three six two zero. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance. We help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Are you a service member thinking about buying or selling your home? Whether you're active duty, a veteran, or a family member, you need a real estate professional who understands the unique challenges of the military. A Navy veteran, certified military relocation professional, prior Blue Angel, and CEO of the Repoint Real Estate Group at Keller Williams Realty Puget Sound, Scott Lever specializes in helping military families relocate to and from the Kitsap Peninsula. Call him today at 206-486-4891 or visit online at repoint.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Welcome, Podcastville. You found the Bystander Podcast. Today's guest is Cole Medina, the mayor of Bainbridge Island. How are you doing today, Cole? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm happy it's a Friday afternoon. Yeah, Seahawk Friday. Let's go. You a Hawk fan? I am. I'll admit it. Nice. I'm not a huge sports guy, but I am a Hawk fan. 
Sounders, you like those? Yeah, uh, although I don't have a lot of time for TV. Well, you need to get out of the game. Experience is the best thing. I went to three or four games this year, actually. Awesome. Sounders games. Can't afford a Seahawks game. Right. It's, it's ridiculous. And when you go to a Seahawks game, it's built for TV. So something exciting happens, and then everybody's standing around, and you're like, what the hell just happened? Frankly, I would rather watch a football game on TV. Yeah, it's like boxing, too. There's no good seats at a boxing match. There's always somebody in your way. You can't see it. But well, the guys are so far away, you can't really see what's going on anyway. Yeah, the price of the tickets like that, too. <clears throat> NBA, I hear, is expensive, too. But we always have our AAA um, Seattle Mariners. That's a cheap ticket. I can't, I can't believe how many players they've just got rid of. Did you just call them AAA? Yes. Nice. I mean, they win like 80 games and say, hey, we got to blow this up. We're not doing well. They, they finally have a winning season, and it's time to just get rid of all those guys. Absolutely. Mm-hmm, makes sense. We, we um, That's the passive-aggressive Northwest vibe, you know. Um. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, it's the first time I've met you. Um, we had a few moments to speak before the show. It was nice to get to know you. Um, but I'd like to share a little bit about you with, with the public here for people that don't know you. Um, you've moved around quite a few places, lived a few, seen a few things, lived a few places. True. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about your college. You went to Stanford and then a few other places. So you've been doing some research on me. I don't fact check, but I do uh, get a little background here. Should I? I'll just start at the beginning and run through it real quick. Okay. How about that? Sounds great. I was born in the great state of Utah, Salt Lake City. And usually when I say that to people, they ask me if I'm Mormon. Uh, I was going to go with jazz fan. Well, yeah, I was a big jazz fan back then. Uh, Not now. It's been a while few years in Salt Lake City, and then we moved to Olympia. So I lived in Olympia for a year and a half. That's actually where I first went to kindergarten. What brought your parents out to Olympia from Utah? That's a strange move. I have no idea. Okay. It was my mom's uh, second husband, actually, not my father. And she uh, had just met him when she worked at the Utah State Department of Employment or whatever it was called, and he was someone coming in to get a job, and that's how she met him. Uh, applied for two positions. I guess he did. Uh, and uh, <laughs> um, his name was uh, Bob LaSalle. Uh, and the reason why he was in there applying for a job is because he'd just gotten out of prison. So he's a career criminal, been in and out of prison since he was a juvenile. And anyway, so for some reason, my mom chose him. And for some reason, they moved to Olympia. I don't know why. That, that's let me stop you there women think they can fix men that's 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 my theory on that i think there's a piece of that with my mom um uh, my uh uh my father her first husband uh was also not a very quality character from what i know but i've never known him he committed suicide when i was two so i never knew him wow it's not a it's not a heavy weight on me it's just you know what that is wow um, I mean, really, like, I never knew him, so it wasn't like I ever had a loss in my life. Um, anyway, uh, Olympia for a year and a half. My sister was born there. Uh, and then uh, Bob, Bobby, was uh, picked up for uh, robbery, and there were drugs involved, too. So he was, 
he was just doing what he does, and he was uh, sent to prison here in Washington. So at that point, we moved back to Salt Lake City for like a year or so, and then um, we moved to Walla Walla. You know why I moved to Walla Walla? Prisons in Walla Walla? You got it. That's where the Washington State Pen is. See, you don't get stories like this on other podcasts. Come to the bystander, you get the dirt. Yeah, this is the true story. Uh, so yeah, I lived in Walla Walla for most of my elementary school years, visiting um, my, my I'm doing air quotes, dad in prison. My sister grew up, got into getting to visit her dad in prison. You know, I have fond memories of my mom being strip searched and uh, lots of card playing in the visiting room and lots of, you know, convicts and their wives making out in front of all the kids in the visiting room and one of my favorites is the uh, the overnight stays. They had an old mobile home there, and the he was in the maximum security yard, so an old mobile home there, and you could come for an overnight stay in the mobile home, just there under the like fifty foot tall walls, you know, with the guy with the machine gun up in the corner. So that was an interesting experience. And then he finally got out of prison, and we moved back to Salt Lake City. Uh, and then he promptly shot a guy in the head in a bar and killed him, and. So uh, then he was put in prison back in Utah. And my mom finally divorced him. And uh, then I got to finish my my youth there in Salt Lake City until I left. I actually didn't graduate from high school. I left a year early to go to an amazing school down in New Mexico called the Arm, Armand Hammer United World College, uh, which is just an amazing place that's all about bringing young people together when they're young and impressionable and putting them up in the mountains away from their family and their lives and their countries uh, and making them learn to, you know, rely on each other and be leaders and uh, love each other. And the basic theme of these United World Colleges, there are 15 of them around the world now, is to, to, to get us all to understand um, that we're all human and not grow up and blow each other up. That's That's pretty much what the United World College is about. Does that have association with Peace Corps? It does not. No. Totally separate. Somewhat similar idea at all? Well, this, you know, Peace Corps is based, is actually going overseas and doing work. Uh, and this this is an educational institution. Um, but there's an ethic there that's very similar, sure. When I was at Arm, Armand Hammer, and it's not the baking soda, there's a guy who's named Armand Hammer um, who helped found the school. Tough name. It is a tough name, right? Do you feel your name's a tough name? <clears throat> you want to sing the song now or later? Hi, Nick. Come on. No, I don't. I, <laughs> I'm trying to avoid all jokes about it, but you know, it seems to come up here and there. No, I, I, uh, I love my name. I think it's great. It's nice to have name recognition. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Bruce Springsteen wrote that song, right? I uh, no, I, th- I thought it was Rage Against the Machine. I like strong names though. My son's Vincenzo, and I wanted to pick a very strong name and yeah. uh, unusual. Kai is his middle name too, kind of the the Polynesian warrior of of the land and water. My son's name is Kai. Really? Uh huh. 
bam, two degrees of Kevin Bacon right there. How about that? With a little mix of Tone Loke in there. Uh, his name is actually Kylan, Kylan um, which we just made up because we like Kai. Uh, but it turns out right now, like, it's one of the most popular names for kids in this state. I thought it was Kale. Like, every kid's named Kale now out here. Really? Yeah, and there's like three or four I've run across. I even well, ran across a kid named Trout. Huh? Only on Bayridge, huh? Yeah. No, oh, did you hear about this? I'm sorry to take away from your the schooling, but uh, conversations evolving into nonsense here. But uh, there was a TSA guy who took this identification of a young girl, and I don't know how to pronounce her name, but it was spelled A-B-C-D-E. And he took a picture of it, put it on social media, and now he's getting sued by the mom who says that he's not paying credit to her name and yeah, you know, all that stuff. Well, he's but, violating her privacy, right? Yeah, but I was just like, you know, who names their kid A-B-C-D-E? That's weird. Absty or something, I don't know. Anyway. Someone who really does not like um, to fit the mold. Right. Yeah. That's the burden on the child, though. Anyway. Uh, back back to Arm and Hammer. Back to Arm and Hammer. Uh, and I'm giving a little detail on that because it, it it's kind of, it relates to um, my life today. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, two years there at Arm and Hammer. Um, and then I went to undergrad in Carleton College, Minnesota, uh, which is a great place where I met my wife. Uh, Elsa, and uh, she's why we live here, uh, because she's a West Seattleite. Um, her family's been there for many generations, and uh, at Armand Hammer, she was actually two years ahead of me. She was a junior when I showed up and was a freshman, but I'd already been in school at Armand Hammer for a couple of years when I got to Carleton, and she was a junior and I was a freshman at Carleton. So I didn't feel like a freshman, but anyway, we we got together there. And uh, the deal was if if she stayed for two years and waited for me to finish at Carleton, then she'd get to cho- choose where we go next. Uh, and s- since she did that, uh, she got some jobs there at Carleton and stayed. And so she chose to go in the Peace Corps. So the Peace Corps is where we headed next. So we were in a little country in Africa, West Africa, called Guinea-Bissau, where actually there are three or four towns named Medina. So how about that? Like going, going to my homeland. Yeah. Because Medina is actually a, uh, one of the most widely used names across the country. I mean, across, across the world. People don't know that, but it's a it's an old Muslim name. And But I won't go into that either. So we're in the Peace Corps for a couple of years. And uh, then uh, it was my turn to choose where to go. So I chose law school. We ended up in the Bay Area. And then after law school, it was her turn to choose. And she chose to come come up here, come home. And now it's 17 years later. And, and did you just pop right here on Bainbridge or did you go to West Seattle or Seattle? No, we just came straight to Bainbridge. We're not big city people. We didn't want to live in the big city, but I knew I'd be working at a law firm in Seattle. So we just came to Bainbridge for kind of the reasons why so many people come to Bainbridge. Yeah. What is your day job right now? I am the president and CEO of the Kitsap Community Foundation. So a lot of, a lot of people don't know what that is, but... I'm I'm basically, as much as any single person is, I'm like right in the middle of the nonprofit community here in the county. So, And you, and you have yeah. extensive background in grant writing and uh, fundraising, correct? Yeah. Uh, so at, I was an attorney at Foster Pepper out of law school, and I was doing nonprofit law there, um, amongst other things. 
Uh, and I left there after a few years to go and actually just do something I enjoyed. And that was running a nonprofit and actually building a nonprofit. And so that was the West Sound Wildlife Shelter. So I was there for about eight and a half years. What was that experience like? Well, that seemed it was, like it would tug at my heartstrings a bit. My undergrad um, degree is in environmental policy and studies. Uh, so that's kind of my passion area, the environment and animals. So wildlife is squarely in there. And yeah, for sure. Uh, it was an opportunity for me. I, I literally took a 75% pay cut to leave the law firm and go be the first executive director half-time at the wildlife shelter. Uh, they only had enough money for six months of my salary. How do you feel they're doing now? I think they're doing great. Um, you asked how it was. It was a journey, and it's it's uh, it was a great opportunity to do some wonderful work in our community, to meet a lot of people in our community, get to know a lot of people, and to learn how to become a good fundraiser and all that stuff. And uh, now I've been at the Community Foundation for six years. Awesome. Um, what was the craziest animal story of that came through there? Like, was there a huge animal, something that just was unique or crazy? Uh, that's interesting. I, I haven't spoken about the wildlife shelter in some years. When you asked me that question, the first thing that popped in my head was this um, orphaned coyote pup that we had come in. Um, we, had, we had a number of coyote pups come in while I was there, but um, this one couldn't be released back to the wild. The, the, the wildlife shelter is a wildlife hospital. The goal there is to bring in injured and orphaned and sick wild animals, give them the care they need, and then kick them back out. But this coyote couldn't go back out because of some injury. I don't remember what it was. Uh, so he actually got to uh, spend a couple weeks living in my office. So I'm, I mean, he didn't spend all his time in my office, but he spent part of his time in my office. So that was pretty special to come into work every day and have this uh, little coyote pup running around, chewing on my shoe and, you know, wanting to play. And, and uh, I should, I should say, at the wildlife shelter, uh, they work very hard to not play with the animals. Mm -hmm. You can't habituate the animals. I mean, you stay as far away from them as you can. But we knew this coyote pup was going to have to live with people in a shelter somewhere, so we were purposely trying to habituate him. So I just got to hang out with this coyote pup and play with him. How'd that story end? Like, what happened to the coyote? Uh, he went to a facility... I don't know where it is. It might be on Vashon. Anyway, he ended up at a shelter... What do you think about the coyote population here on the island? Do you think we're treading more and more on them with with development? And I think that uh, earlier this week I was woken up in the middle of the night because there's a coyote out in my yard just going off about something, and, <laughs> and my dog, of course, then had to respond there in the house. Um, I, I I think coyotes are really neat animals, and I think yeah, absolutely, um, we're. We're making life harder and harder on wildlife here on the island as the island um, grows and develops more. I mean, we see it everywhere. Well, let's segue into some of that growth. Um, what's happening with that project on Madison Avenue that just recently got cleared? Who's developing that and what's that look like for the future? Well, there are actually uh, three developments there right next to each other. Um, and I'm not sure which one of them has been cleared or if actually maybe two or all three of them have been cleared now. 
Um, so it looks like one huge development. Right. It's actually three different developments, and uh, they have two of them are um, being done by the same developer, who honestly whose name I don't remember. And then the third one's done by a whole different group of people. So it's not just one development company doing them all. Uh, right up there on on Madison, right fronting up on Madison will be, I don't remember the exact number, it's like around 25 condos in townhome kind of style. Uh, there's a development kind of like that on Madison already where they kind of front up to the street and they're like little, they look yeah. like little entrances on the front. So it'll be another thing like that. Um, and then back behind that, um, there's some single-family homes that are going in back there. And then the, the third one is another kind of townhome development. I don't remember the details of it. Uh, being the mayor, being a city council member, we don't really get into the weeds of that stuff. And city planning? Yeah, the planning department, public works, they manage all that stuff. Most of that stuff, most developments that happen on the island never come to the council. We don't We don't have approval over that stuff. It all happens at the planning director level or the hearing examiner level. It's only it's only large subdivisions that come to the council. So most of it we don't really know about. Speaking of sub subdivisions, um, there seems to be a little bit of fear that general contractors that live and work in this area are kind of getting pushed out by the Dr. Horton type of development. And these uh, mansion type, I don't want, don't want to call it a mansion, but larger homes out there off Finch don't quite fit into the local charm and aesthetically like the communities that they're popping up in. Um, what do we do to manage the expectation that we're providing development for, for locals versus big corporations? And how do we scale the growth of these what do you call it, a suburban cul-de-sac type areas that are popping up uh, pretty prevalently over there on Torvanger is one, um, right there by uh, Off Weaver and and then Finch too. Those are eye-shocking, huge, large lot developments. Yeah, yeah I uh, I think they're horrible. Um, the reason why they've happened is because this city has a development code that says you can do that. And people who, for the most part, people who live here and develop a piece of property don't do stuff like that because they live here and they're going to, they're going to keep living here after that stuff's developed. And they only have some pride in this place and they know what this place is about. And they, they want to make homes and developments that fit here and that people are proud of. Um, it really is, for the most part, these outside companies, you named D.R. Horton, uh, that, that come in. Um, they don't care about the community at all. They just care about maximizing the value they can get out of that property. And unfortunately, we have a land use code that allows them to build those things they built. Um, and some people come to us and um, rightly are angry at the city for letting these things get built. But by the time they see these things, it's too, it's too late. I mean, we have a code that allows it. And if the code allows it, we can't stop them. They have a legal right to do what the code allows. So uh, that's why a year ago, January of this year, we on the council adopted a development moratorium and said, time out. We're not going to allow any more subdivisions on the island. And we included some other stuff in that. 
Uh, but let's talk about subdivisions on the island uh, until we get some codes changed so that these developments that I think no one likes can't happen again. So since January, our planning department and the council has been hard at work redoing all of our codes. And I can get into the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of that if you want, but the summary is we are in the process of redoing all the codes that, that control these types of larger developments so that those things can't happen again. And, and one, maybe one example of what we're doing, totally rewriting the subdivision code. Right now, if you have a 20-acre piece of property, like the property over on Weaver, which isn't 20 acres, but whatever it is, let's say it's five acres and it's zoned, I think that's zone 2.9 or 3.5, which means you get to build um, 2.9 uh, units per acre. Uh, so that maybe, maybe they, let's say they, they have the right under the current code um, to build 20 units out there. The way the code is written now, you have to divide your property up in 20 equal parcels and build a house on each one of those parcels. That's what the code says you have to do if you want to develop a subdivision. So the new subdivision code won't say that. New subdivision code will say, I'm waiting for the name of it to come to me. I'm, it's, uh, we're calling it a conservation village. Uh, so the new subdivision code will say, hey, you got you got five acres and our zoning allows you to build 20 units on there. We don't want you to cut it up into 20 parcels and um, build huge houses on every parcel. Uh, we want you to take your 20 homes and make them smaller and put them all together in one little piece of that property and make a little conservation village out of your 20 homes and leave the rest of that property in native vegetation. Um, so it's, so it, it fits the character of the island. So that's, that's one example of the codes we're trying to change. And, and that's how council works on this. Council doesn't approve the developments. Council, of course, is making the code that the developments have to follow. When do you see, see that code coming into effect? How long of a process do you think it'll take to get that change? There's, and second part of that question is, can we add more smart building ideas to it? Like, yeah. Like, is it, can everything be beyond green and you know can we add solar requirements can we can we make it not not the way where you choose affordable or green but affordable smart building practices stuff like that is yeah. that coming down the pipe and it is, is it, it is coming down the pipe and my short answer to the first part of that question is way too long it takes an amazingly long time to change codes um, part of it is because it's it's a public process. So our government systems are set up to force things to take a long time um, because you have to have a lot of public participation in these things and you have to have a number of steps in the process. Uh, the alternative, of course, is, you know, the, the council just gets up there one night and just writes down a bunch of stuff and says approved and boom, you have a new code. Well, that code's going to suck. Because mm -hmm. um, this stuff's really complicated and you want the public to have lots of time to understand what you're talking about and get involved and say what they want to say about it. So it takes a long time. We've been working on it since January. Uh, I don't expect to have this new subdivision code done until next summer. Uh, so that, that development moratorium is still in place. It's in place through the middle of April. And if we've made enough progress by then, then we'll let it expire. But if we haven't, then we'll extend it longer until we get these codes made. Um, so that's how long it takes. 
one of the things we're looking at in these code changes is what you're talking about in relation to a green building. Uh, we haven't seen, we the council, haven't seen uh, any drafts of that yet, so we don't know exactly what direction that's going to go in. We've just had some preliminary discussions about what kind of standard do we want to build into our codes for the island. Do we want to use the living building challenge, which is one way of looking at um, green buildings? Do we want to use the lead system, which is something more people are familiar with? There are a couple other standards out there. So there's a lot of competition amongst whose standard is the best standard to use for this stuff. Uh, and we've only had preliminary conversations about where we want to go, but that, that will be part of this. Um, let's back up here a little bit. I know you worked on city council and were deputy mayor prior to you being mayor. How did this all evolve? How did you become mayor and what did you hope to do by becoming mayor? I'm just recently woke. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's all right. Um, I'll back up a little step farther actually. So I'm, I'm on council uh, because some people asked me to run for council. I mean, I've, I've had an interest in um, local politics. Uh, I I actually ran the. I was a mem- I was on the executive board of uh, local Democratic Party for eight years, um, and I was the. Um, I'm forgetting the title. Uh, I guess the chair of the executive board. So I was the chair of the local party for two years. Uh, and so, I, I mean, I definitely have an interest in government and how it works. Um, but I, but through that process, I actually decided that I was never going to run for office uh, for various reasons. Um, but then uh, Ann Blair, who was uh, in the northward position that I'm in now before me, decided she wasn't going to run again. Uh, and people asked me to run for her seat. And so... Uh, at heart, I'm really just a public servant, and and that's why I mentioned Armand Hammer because I don't know if it was already in me or if it's Armand Hammer that put it in me, um, <clears throat> but I, I'm really just a public servant. I'm just I'm just a person who wants to help my community be better, and it's hard for me to say no when people mm-hmm. you know ask you me to it. help right for yeah, sure when I'm wanted, and so so I said okay, I'll run for council, and that's that's why that happened and the way the mayor thing works on council i think you understand that uh the mayor here i i referred to myself as a fake mayor uh because the the city manager really runs the city here not me um i just i run the council council hires the city manager and she runs the city um the mayors of bremerton and paulsbo and port orchard are what I call, especially when I'm joking around with them, r- real mayors in the county because they are elected as mayor, and they don't sit on the council. They run the city. Um, they don't have any role in passing laws. They just run the city and implement those laws. It's a different format, correct? Yeah, it's, it's a it's a strong mayor form of government. What we have is a city manager form of government. So I wasn't elected by the people of the island to be mayor. I'm I'm just elected as a city council member. But the city council members have to choose one of the council members to hold the title of mayor because we need, under various laws, someone called the mayor to sign um, all the ordinances that we pass. Uh, And we need someone to run the meetings. Um, 
So that's part of my job is to facilitate the council meetings and we need someone to set the agendas for the council meetings. So that's my job. I'm the lead on that. I mean, we do it all together, but someone's got to be kind of the point person for setting those agendas. And we need someone to go serve on the various county boards and bodies. Go to meetings. Um, go to meetings around the rest of the county. And that's a really good fit for me because I work at the Community Foundation in Silverdale, so I'm already off in the county. So it's much easier for me to go to those meetings. And uh, we need someone to go and, uh, you know, represent the city and make make little speeches. And uh, like tomorrow I get to go and uh, turn on the lights on the Christmas tree in the winter wonderland. You know, it's an important job. Uh, but I'm mayor because um, some council members asked me to be mayor. How, how does one become deputy mayor? We try to make sure everyone on council gets a chance to be deputy mayor. So we, we rotate that around. The council members have to elect the deputy mayor and have to elect the mayor amongst themselves. So we, we try to make sure every person on council gets a chance to be deputy mayor so they get to see what that's like. Um, so that position is usually a six-month position. And the mayor position is a two-year position. Um, but I, I mayor because some council members asked me to be mayor, and I said, okay, I'll do it, and they voted for me to be mayor. All right. There you go. Now, now you know. Um, I got some listener questions. You up for taking a few of them? Yeah, please. Please. Uh, I feel like I've been talking way too long about myself, so let's <laughs> talk about some other stuff. All right. Uh, bystander put out, uh, if you had one question to ask the mayor, what would it be? And I've collected a few questions from some listeners and thank you listeners for putting those questions forward. I appreciate your um, downloading, subscribing, listening, and sharing to the podcast. First question is by John. He would like to know how close is the island to full build out under current zoning and in parentheses, he put empty lots only. I don't have the specific numbers. Uh, again, because I'm a fake mayor, I'm not a real mayor, so um, I don't work with those numbers every day. Um, so my more vague answer is not close. Uh, under the Growth Management Act, Washington State Growth Management Act, every community is required to take a certain amount of population growth. Every 10 years, right? Is it a 10-year period? Yeah, that tends to be how it's looked at. Um and I say required loosely. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not clear if it's really required under the GMA or just an, kind of an expectation. But there's, so I'll just use that word. There's an expectation that every county and every city within every county is going to take a certain amount of population growth and is going to take that growth and center it into urban areas instead of just sprawling all over the place. So Kitsap County has a certain amount of growth that it's expected to take over the next 20 years. I mean, there's a 10-year number and a 20-year number and and I don't remember those exact numbers. Um, although I, I think, uh, I probably shouldn't speak if I don't know it for sure, but the number for Kitsap County over the next maybe 25 years, maybe these are 2050 numbers and not 2040 numbers, somewhere in there is like 100,000 people. That's what um, the state projects the growth of Kitsap County will be. Kitsap County is about 260,000 people now. So 100,000 more people over the next 20 or 30 years. That's a lot of people. There's a percentage of that that um, Bainbridge is supposed to take. Uh, the current zoning on Bainbridge allows for all the growth that's expected under the GMA over the next 20, 30 years. That zoning 
um, is already here, um, which is why when we just redid our comp plan a couple of years ago, we didn't have to change the zoning. And and I think the number is like 6,000. Again, people shouldn't quote me on this, but whoever's listening. No fact checking. Please, no fact checking. But I think it's something like six or 8,000 more people over the next 20 years. But that's a pretty big increase if our current population is 24,000. And our current zoning does allow for that. Yeah, that, that makes me think of a non-listener question, but basically, how do we get over the hump of affordable housing, and are we going to uh, succeed in that, in that period of time, in perhaps finding a solution to what seems to be near crisis situation? I think it is a crisis situation, uh, and it's also a, a damned hard problem to solve. I've talked to a lot of intelligent people, and they don't have answers. Uh, and I shouldn't even use the word solve. Uh, I don't think there is any way to solve it, especially for a community like Bainbridge. It's, I mean, it's market forces that have driven property to cost what it costs here on the island, and there's no way to just suddenly change those market forces. The city's um, now um, really taking it seriously, and um, we have this nice report that was done by a task force we set up that they – they finished earlier this year in the late summer. It's got a bunch of great recommendations that the city's now starting to um, implement. It's going to take a long time to implement all those recommendations. Um, but each one of those recommendations just kind of nibbles at the edges of this problem. And if we can nibble at it in 10 different ways, maybe we can have a significant impact. We're not going to solve it. They're all different ideas too. All different ideas. Um because there is no silver bullet for this. Yeah, and I don't think there's a model that we can look at and say, this has made this place have affordable housing. Not that one that that I know. Maybe other people smarter than me, which is a few of you, But there's a, there, that answer. There are a lot of really difficult questions in the affordable housing question. It, it kind of it sits in the center of a, a bunch of different um, desires that people have on this island, right? Like one desire is let's have some affordable housing. Another desire is let's protect our environment. Well, the more that you make it difficult to develop property because we are making them think very seriously about how they develop it and protect the environment on that property, the more expensive it becomes just by definition. So uh, the more you try to protect the environment, the, the more costly housing becomes it's not a direct correlation i'm not saying that's the main reason why housing is more expensive i don't think that's the main reason but it's a reason um, so there's this trade-off there and that's tough you know i think i think the majority of bamers islanders want both they want more affordable housing and they want to make sure we maintain our character and our environment and i don't know there's a way to do both yeah well keep trying um Sal writes in specifically, what can an average citizen do to make the city of Bainbridge Island a more diverse and inclusive place to live, work, and visit? So Sal listens to your podcast. Shout out to Sal. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I'm not, I don't know that I, got, I have good answers uh, to that. And I'm sorry. And I was thinking of Sal as you were reading the question what was the first part of the questioning? Was he asking what Bamers as a city can do or as a community? No, the, the citizen. The citizen. The average citizen, specifically. <clears throat> what can the average citizen do to make it more inclusive, diverse, place to work, live, and visit? 
Well, the first thing that uh, every citizen can do is not be a racist jerk, right? I mean, if if we can all um, treat everyone as um, we would like to be treated ourselves, uh, I think that would go a long way. Uh, and we we think, I think most of us think that um, Bramage Island is this really uh, progressive liberal place where everyone's really nice and no one's a racist or a, any sort of ist. Uh, and, you know, it's not true. Right. Even even if you feel you're not a racist, there's subconscious things that have been planted in your growth uh, as a human being that, you know, um, how do I say it? Um, you have objection to or you, you, you may even not even know what your face looks like when you're looking at it. And that could be. Uh, a signal that you're not making it inclusive for somebody else or that you're looking down upon somebody. And and there's diversity in here, not only in the land, but the people that are here. And being inclusive is a great idea, but there's not standard norms for it that people can practice. Like I try to practice this nonviolent communication and the path of empathy for others. And it's a struggle because, yeah. you know, a lot of times I just want to tell somebody to F off. Mm-hmm. And a couple times I do, but <laughs> I'm a work in progress. And it doesn't work so well when you just tell them to F off, does it? No, but I think sometimes me just shutting up works mm-hmm. and not trying to prove a point or win an argument because it's not an argument. It's a conversation. And this is a conversation I think more people need to have. If there is racism. There is a lack of diversity. There's a lack of conscious thought as we walk around. I mean, this guy the other day at TNC, I was putting my stuff on the conveyor belt, getting my groceries, just walked right in front of me with two items, put them down, cashier took it, you know, guy's in a suit, and I was just like, okay. There was a guy with money, thought he was more important, limited time, jumped right ahead, didn't say anything to me. Wow. And I was just like, okay, I'm a ghost here. <clears throat> and you... uh you found it easier to just let that happen because it probably was easier. It was because mm-hmm. otherwise it'd be a confrontation and I didn't need it. And I'm at peace at my pace. Yeah. You know, I'm not in a hurry to go anywhere and I don't need to be, be- prove myself better to- than anyone else. So, You know, I, I, maybe he hadn't realized they got the new self-checkout. He should have just headed to the back. No, nah, see, people like that want to be uh, tended to, served, yeah. waited on. Right. Um Another interesting thing about this question is, what are the stats? Um, so Bainbridge Island is, I uh, see different stats, but 91 to 93% white. It, it really is. We think it's, oh, it's a white place. It is 91 to 93%. Uh, and the remainder is, you know, split ab- amongst different racial groups. So like there's there's no... Um, ethnic group here that you know has a, a strong presence really i think that's part of the problem like there's not a critical mass right well and there's a dominance in a skin color yeah for sure we also have to know that you know just that they're white people doesn't mean that they're not from a different uh area you sure. know from belgium from sweden from wherever you know like my wife's italian polish um there there's diversity within the white culture as well and we all need to just treat each other as humans. Can I, can I add just one, one little thing? Yeah, here? yeah, add as much as you want. When my wife and I were in the Peace Corps in, again, in a little country called Guinea-Bissau, it's uh, literally one of the 
10 poorest countries in the world, um, there weren't a lot of white people in the country. Um, in part because it was so poor, there was no business there. So there weren't, there weren't like a bunch of white people doing business there. Really like the only white people there were expats, people there working for nonprofits or the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. And all those expats drove around in their Land Rovers and, and for, for that place, fancy cars and didn't really, you know, interact with the people. They weren't out on the street. The only people out on the street who were white were the Peace Corps volunteers. And it was really weird uh, to everywhere we went there. Um, I mean, we just stood out because we were, we were the minority. Makes you feel different. Doesn't oh yeah. It? Like we were the minority uh, and obviously so. And the center of attention, like everywhere we went, I don't mean that everyone around us was attending to us, but there were always lots of people who were watching us asking us for stuff, treating us in ways based on their assumptions about who we were. Mm -hmm. And, and it was, it was really uncomfortable. Yeah. It, I think Mercer Island probably has a similar problem too, that people think that if you're white on Bainbridge Island or Mercer Island, that you're affluent, you know, well, here, I'm here to tell you that I'm not. And there's a stereotype again against me for my color. So I think we need to be more inclusive. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not affluent either. I'll just let you know. I have to dress up in nice clothes though, because I I put the mayor hat on. And I have to look nice. That's where you should go go like the the Trump red hat, corduroy hat, you know, so fake mayor on it. Um, Derek writes in: How do you see city council's responsibility to the people's inquiries, and do you see council representing their own agenda or the people's agenda? Um, I think it's a. Um, well, in response to the second question, I think it's a mix. Um, sometimes it's hard to separate out what's the people's agenda and what's your own agenda because it's the same thing. I mean, I'm one of the people, you know? Right. Like, You're part of the community. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, Sometimes people, it's, it's, it's weird. Uh, you get up on council and, and it's like sometimes people forget that you're their neighbor. Like, we're also part of the community. Um, we're not just like some aliens that were like dispatched from yeah. on high and stuck down here to like lead you. <laughs> yeah, three years ago when you weren't on council, nobody was hating on you like they are today, right? Yeah, right. I mean, we're we're just your neighbors and people, just like you. And um, but some, it's it's interesting how the dynamics work because sometimes people forget that. Um, but uh, I try. Well, the first part of that question was something like, you know, how important is listening to the people. Uh, at least that's how I heard, heard it. Um, we can paraphrase here. Okay. And that, I think it's terribly important. It's the most important part of my job. Um, we we hear from people a lot, um, a lot more than most folks realize because uh, there's a thing called email. So we get a lot of emails. Um, and I, I make a, a very strong effort to reply to every email. Uh, sometimes we have an issue um, that's really controversial where there's a vote coming, where the council's going to be voting, you know, yay or nay, and we'll get like a hundred emails just with people telling us how they want us to vote. And I, I'm not able to respond to all those because it's just it's just too many. So there's a deluge and I can't respond to all those. And I don't think those people are looking for a response. They're just lodging their vote. And that's, that's totally cool. But other than that stuff, I respond to every email I receive to let people know that I've, I've read it and I've heard them and um, and if I don't, if I agree with them, I tell them that. If I don't agree, I I try to uh, explain to them my perspective on it and why I feel differently from what they 
what their perspective is. Um, because that's my job, right? We're here to represent people uh, and to explain the city to people who, who are looking for answers. Um, so I, I take that really, really seriously. I'm surprised at how few people call us, we get very few phone calls. It's mainly email. And then who people show up at meetings and get public comment there. Like when you guys have your two-hour <clears throat> open office session, like you have coffee and tea at TNC on Saturdays. Yeah. How many people show up to those conversations? It's it's different. Not that many, frankly. Um, I I started that. When I got on council, I started doing that. There wasn't anyone doing that when I got on council. I love that idea. I mean, you got to do it, right? You got to just be accessible somewhere. It's easier than making separate meetings with the 100 people that emailed you and just say, hey, this two-hour period, you can come sit down and talk with me. And That's it. I appreciate this. I mean, I sent you an email, you responded promptly, and we're sitting down having a conversation. And that's what communication is. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's the most important part of the job in my mind. And it's interesting you picked it up. The, the, the office hours is good for folks and for me. For the reason you said, otherwise I have to schedule things all over the place. So, hey, and you, you got hobbies. You tell me a little, a little bit about this uh, mountain bike thing you do. What yeah, kind, so, what kind of racing is that? So I, I'm a pretty serious mountain biker. Um, there are two race series around these parts for mountain bikes, and I do both of them every year. One's one's called the Boodoo series. I don't know where that name comes from. Um, the other's the uh, Northwest Epic series and the Buddha races tend to be shorter. So they're, uh, they tend to be 10 to 15 miles long, you know, maybe a thousand, 1500 feet elevation gain. Oh, so this, this is mountain biking. It's not velodrome. It's... No, no. This is out on trails in the mud, mountain biking. Shout out to my girl, Courtney McFadden. <clears throat> yeah. I was her high school soccer coach for a long time. Oh yeah. She seems to be doing quite well and getting through injuries and still rocking it. Uh, I never really knew about this um, <clears throat> this sport in this capacity until I saw her doing it. Yeah, it's finally coming along as a recognized sport on the world stage. Um, the Northwest Epic Series races that I do are, are longer. They're thirty mile races. You know, three thousand to six thousand feet elevation. Um, What's it like to breathe like that when you're on a bike? <laughs> uh, I don't know how to answer that. Um, well, you take a lot of short breaths, deep breath. You just normal, not thinking about it. No, in a race, uh, you're breathing most of the time. You are breathing hard, and those are um, fast, short breaths. Um, I don't know. That's the way my body handles it. Is it something you practice the the breathing exercises? Well, the only thing I had to practice with um, breathing was learning to breathe, learning to belly breathe. It really helps. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm still not a master of it. You know, I practice mindfulness and I try to go through these breathing patterns in the mornings when I'm out on trails. And uh, it's difficult at times. And yeah. I, I appreciate that about Bainbridge Island more than anything is the, the fresh air right. right here. You know, we're surrounded by water and the wind blows through here and the fog settles in and it's, it's pleasant. It is an amazing place. Um Back to that question, though, uh, I do try to represent people and do what people want. Um, but I also have my own biases in there. Like I already mentioned, you know, I have my degrees in environmental policy and studies, and at heart, I'm, I'm an environmentalist. And uh, it's important for me to work to protect our environmental values and functions on the island. Um, thankfully, I'm in a community where that's important to most people. So I think that 
that I, when I'm doing that, I am representing most people. Um, and then, of course, that's not all that's important to me, but just to pick that as an example. Uh, but something on council that's really hard is knowing what the majority of people want. Uh, when there's a when there's a issue in front of us, a lot of the stuff we deal with, no one cares about. You know, next next week we're going to be deciding whether to approve uh, another year of our jail contract. You know, like stuff like that, or we're going to buy a street sweeper. You know, no one cares about that. Like a lot of the stuff's just boring, mundane stuff. Like we just have to do. But when it comes to stuff that people care about, like Suzuki, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that project. Very much so. Um, you know, we tend to only hear from a small group of people. Uh, there'll be people fired up on one side of an issue or maybe on both sides of an issue, but it's a small group usually on one or both sides of the issue, and it's really hard to know what most of the people island want us to, on the island want us to do, and I wish more people would let us know. Is there some way we can vote on initiatives? and like Just send me an email and tell me. You know, tell me how you feel about it. So where are we at at Suzuki right now? I think there was something out in the Kitsap Sun um, regarding that, that there are some plans drawn up for developing that property at this point. Yeah, the plans are actually the same plans that um, that we had a year ago or whenever that was that we um, decided to take on Olympic Property Group as our development consultant or development partner for this. Um, so at the time we took them on, there was just a conceptual site plan for 50 to 60 units out there. Um, and now OPG has gone through and done a lot of the studies that you need to get done to get through the permitting process. Because just, just like any developer, if the city wants to develop that property, we have to go through the permitting process with the city, just like mm-hmm. anybody else. Right. So OPG is do, doing that process for us that we need for the permitting. And um, So they reported to the council a couple of weeks ago on their progress. And they pointed out at that time that the city code actually allows to us to construct more than 50 to 60 units out there, that in fact, we could get up to 90 units out there. I don't think there's any council member who has any interest in pushing 90 units out there. But, you know, people in the community heard that and kind of freaked out because um, that seems like a lot, and it is. Um, but it's between schools, too. You know. Yeah. That's where you might want to densify, if in my mind. Well, this comes back to that affordable housing question, right? Right. Like the council has decided clearly that whatever we build out there, 100% of the units are going to be affordable. Okay, so do you push it and build 90 truly affordable units out there? Um, Or do you only build 30 or 40 affordable units, like the minimum you need to make it pencil out? I just see it becoming, a, for lack of good vocabulary, the projects there. If you put 90 in there, you know. That's oh. a concern some people raise. Yeah. And um, another thing, there's the water reservoir down there. Um, and lastly, if the city develops, not, not lastly, scratch that. I got a few questions here. Um, if the city develops that, do they have to um, stick to 30, 35% of the property developed and leave the natural vegetation? What is it? 3565 that, that property is not in a zone where that what you're referring to applies but I, I can come back and explain that because um, that only applies to certain zones that property is not in that zone um, this we've already decided that the maximum development footprint on that as it turns out will only be 30 to 35 percent of the property. So 65 or 70% of that property, the council's already decided is not going to be developed. So this question of 
30 units to 90 units is all within that, that like 30% okay. portion. Um, but there are neighbors who... That's a good explanation, and I don't think people know that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, we, we take it for granted, but probably most people don't realize that. Um, but there are neighbors there who maybe they don't understand that um, or who are just really worried about traffic. So yeah. they, they and don't we want... don't need a roundabout there, people. I, I usually don't throw my opinion out there, but worst case scenario, if you pick up your kid and get on 305 or go the other way south, it's a three-minute wait. You know, that's not traffic. So the you want to talk roundabout for a minute? Or do you want no, to leave it at that? I'm just going to put my stuff out there for a minute. Okay. Let it simmer. I do want to talk. How does OPG become your go-to developer? Oh, well, a couple of years ago now, uh, we put out an RFP for proposals for that property. What is an RFP? Uh, request for proposals. So it's just a piece of paper that says, hey, we're looking for someone to tell us uh, good, uh, cool ideas. So it's an open bid process? Kind of, yeah. We're just like, hey, you know, we got 14 acres. Uh, we think we'd maybe like to use, do some affordable housing. You know, just give us some ideas for what you think would be cool and good for the community to build out there. And so we got four proposals in. And one of them was from a group that included Olympic Property Group. And it was Housing Kitsap and Olympic Property Group. And I think Housing Resources Bainbridge was part of that group. But I... The memory's a little fuzzy now. And they proposed uh, building a bunch of affordable housing out there. Uh, and uh, the city council looked through the different proposals and chose that one. Uh, so we, we brought them on and said, all right, you're, you're the group of folks who we think have the best idea. We'd like um, to work with you to get this property developed. Uh, um, so it was a decision we made through an open process. And uh, then it got slowed down because we wanted some environmental studies and other things done. And then um, we finally got to the point where uh, we needed to move forward with doing something. And uh, it became clear the city's not a developer. We don't know how to develop property. We know how to permit property, but the city's never developed anything. So we needed to hire someone to do that. Um, just like uh, you know, if you if you were gonna if you had five acres and you wanted to develop it, well, you'd probably hire someone who knows how to do that, right? So that's so we hired OPG uh, to be our the person to do the development work for us, and then Housing Kitsap is supposed to come in and actually get the uh, tax credits or other uh, you know financing mechanisms in place to purchase the property and build the affordable housing units. Um, but Housing Kitsap is now not in a position to do that. So right now, the uncertainty is we need to find a new development partner to come in and actually buy the property once it's gone through the permitting with OPG. Someone, someone else will buy it and build the affordable housing units. So we just created a subcommittee of the council to um, basically interview some new development partners and pick a new one. That's where we're at. All right. Um, David writes in, what un unintended consequences do you foresee from council's attempts to thwart growth? It's from David. It's hard to see unforeseen, isn't it? Yeah, I am. Um, I don't actually think the council has done anything as a council that is an attempt to thwart growth. Honestly, um, I haven't. Uh, I'm. I don't do anything on council just to stop growth. Uh, I think there might be some council members who approach it that way. Um, but I don't think it's a majority of council. Um, 
so I just want to be clear on that point. Uh, but that's not to say that we haven't done some things on council that do get in the way of growth. So um, some of these really strong environmental protections that we put in place, yeah, those, those get in the way of, you know, unlimited growth. That's not, that's not why I support that stuff. I support that stuff because I support protecting the environment. Um, so maybe that's, I'm sorry, I'm an attorney, you know, I like to make these distinctions, but um, I don't, I, I think maybe the unforeseen consequences of these strong environmental protections we put in place um, include that it does um, make growth more difficult. So that's not the point, but that does happen. Uh, maybe for some council members, that is the reason why they do it. Um, maybe what he's getting at with that question is affordable housing. Uh, and so it goes back to what I was already talking about. You know, the, the more difficult it is to develop, uh, the pricier it's going to be for, for homes on the island. But that's not the main driver of housing prices on the island. I mean, really, it's the market that drives it. I don't know of any other unforeseen things. Yeah. We can't see them. We can't see into the future. Right? We can we can hope and guide and take the horse to water, but we'll see. Um, Stevie G, sports. Um, what is Kobe's plan for homelessness on the island? And I got another question about that later. Yeah. The city doesn't have a plan for homelessness. That's the, uh, the honest answer. Um, there is no City of Bainbridge Island homelessness plan. Um, the city has this uh, plan I referred to earlier. It's called our Affordable Housing Task Force Recommendations. You can go to the city website and see this really fine report that this task force made and all the recommendations for affordable housing. That's not a homelessness plan. Um, thankfully, we don't have, uh, compared to other um, municipalities, a lot of homelessness on the island. So it's not something the council or the city has been forced to deal with. It's not the highest priority. It's not. Um, I guess that's a short answer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bob Drago, whoever you are, um, wrote in, and I know you're not a listener. When are you going to build a homeless shelter to take care of our homelessness? Mm -hmm. uh, there's no plans to do so. Uh, I guess that goes with the last question. We don't. We don't have a homeless plan. And there, there's resources in Bremerton and Kitsap County that are overview of that include Bainbridge Island too, where where people can seek assistance and they can start by going to a Helpline or Housing Resources Bainbridge, and then get that ball rolling. Well, and I'll and I'll add that um, none of the munis. I mean, I I might be mistaken on this, I might be forgetting something, but I believe that none of the governmental jurisdictions in the county, cities or the county, run any homeless shelters. Now, that's not what those governments do. I think it's more transitional housing yeah. um, and assistance. So Housing Kitsap uh, is its own independent governmental agency. Uh, it manages 900 units of affordable housing around the county. Shout out to them. And Mrs. Jewell, you guys are doing a great job. And I'll just add, people who don't know this, 100 units of those 900 units that Housing Kitsap managers are here on the island. We have 100 units of affordable housing here on the island managed by Housing Kitsap. Is that like rhododendron apartments? And can you name another? Yeah, rhododendron. And um, I just visited the mall earlier this year. One of my um, quirks is I never, I can't remember names for the life of me, but... You heard it from Tiny Tim's self here on the Bystander Podcast, Bystander Podcast, Bystander Podcast. 
It'll help with your memory there. Don't forget me. Okay. <laughs> hey, Janice wants to know, when is the new police station going to be built and completed? I would like to know that too. Uh, hopefully, uh, most people have cottoned on by now that the plan is for the city to uh, purchase the the old CHI Franciscan building. And that's located over there behind Walgreens or across no. from the fire station? Behind wall, across from the fire station. Uh, so CHI used to be in that building that they built across from the fire station, and now they're over behind Walgreens. Uh, so um, we want to purchase that property from CHI Franciscan and remodel that into our new police station and court facility. So the court would also be in that building. Yeah, the courthouse, the lease is up soon, right? Yeah, I don't remember exactly. Uh, maybe a couple of years. Not, not so far out. Um, again, don't quote me on the years, but no fact checking. Thank you. Um, but not so long. Uh, the timeline on that is the city council approved doing that a few months ago, maybe half a year ago now. So we had to, under the law, we have to get an appraisal of the property and we as a government entity spending taxpayer dollars, uh, can only purchase it for what the appraisal is or up to 10% above the appraisal. But by law, that's what we have to purchase it for. So we got an appraisal done and uh, CHA got an appraisal done and there's a difference in the appraisals. And so we're trying to come uh, f find a way to purchase the property in that middle zone. Is there a backup plan? No, that's the plan is to buy that property. We'll stick with the plan. Then. Mm -hmm. uh, and sorry, so if we get that property built, I'm sorry, purchased, you know, I hope we have that done in the next couple of months. Um, then uh, we need to move into the stage of getting the, all the design work and architectural work done and getting it built. And I, I think the um, consultants, the architects, thought that would take a couple of years. Okay. Um, let's speed this up here a little bit. Um, Sherry wants to know, what is what did you want to accomplish the most as mayor? Um, I can't say that I uh, had any... Okay, uh, that's interesting. Um, I was going to say that I didn't have any uh, agenda for being mayor. I mean, really, I had an, um, some things I wanted to accomplish when I got on council three years ago. Uh, and I, I can talk about that. Um, but I guess it's not true to say I have had no agenda of being mayor. There is something I hope to accomplish as mayor. Um, and that is maybe two things. Uh trying to get more stuff done on the city council level. Um, and uh, we have a council this year that uh, has a, has given itself a, a heavier workload than um, I think councils in recent years, certainly than councils during my first two years on council. Um, so we're working hard. In my first two years on council, uh, our meeting started at seven uh, we were often done by nine. Maybe we'd go to 10 on a late night. Um, now, uh, our meetings... multiple meetings a week, though, don't you? I mean, we meet every Tuesday, once a week. And you don't have auxiliary as a conversation? As a council, we meet once a week. There are a bunch of other committees and boards we're on and stuff. But as a, as a council, it's once a week. Um, you know, now our meetings start at six. They usually go until 10. They're usually four-hour meetings every week. 
Uh, this week we started the meeting at five because we knew it was going to go longer than 10. So it was almost a five hour meeting. Uh, and the reason why these meetings are longer now is because we've given ourselves a big workload. We're trying to get a lot of good stuff done for the community. How many hours a week do you think you work on council stuff? You know, it varies, but uh, on average, around 15, you know, some weeks are more, mm. some weeks are a little less. Well, you guys are accomplishing a lot at that if it's only 15 hours a week. Yeah, and maybe I'm underestimating that, but that's what I tell myself. Maybe I'll ask a kid and your wife <laughs> how much time. The other thing I want to accomplish as a mayor, one is try to get a lot of stuff through. Um, I run a lot of meetings in my life, um, and I, I feel like I'm pretty good at running meetings and keeping agendas straight and keeping people focused. And so I hope as mayor I'm able to, to do that and get us as a group to move through a lot of stuff in an efficient way. Um, but the other thing, yeah. I could tell tell that about you because like Tuesday, the meeting adjourned and you dropped Mike and hit the door like <laughs> like a roadrunner. Yeah. It's over. We're done. Um, and, you know, Tuesday, Joe, last Tuesday, Joe, uh, deputy mayor was running that meeting. He's run a couple because he kind of wanted to try it on. Um, Shout out to Mr. Dietz. Yeah. Mr. Dietz is a good man. Uh, the other thing I want to do as mayor is just tr try the best I can um, to, to maintain uh, a good amount of camaraderie and civility amongst the council members and to bring into that, into those meetings, um, a bit of humor and a little bit of informality so we don't all take ourselves too seriously. So you planted those guys in costumes that one? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I wish they'd come back. It'd be fun to have Shout more. Shout out to the masked people. Yeah. So those are some of my goals as mayor. What happened with that guy that you threw out at one time? Oh, he's been back. I, I won't name him, but I could. He's a he's a regular. Okay, like good space guy he is. Um, well let's let's talk about relationships. Um, and get off these questions here from the listeners for a minute. What went down with um Doug leaving, and what do you see was a difficulty with the city manager and council working together to the extent where he bounced? There's a piece of him leaving that um, most people haven't paid attention to because the focus goes to his comments in the Kitsap Sun article um, about a particular council member. Um, but he, he was actually thinking of leaving for personal reasons. Yeah, his family's down in California. Yeah, you know. His, That's what I tell people for sure. Yeah, his, 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 um, his last child, I mean, all of his children had left the area and his last child left in September. And so all of his kids are down in the Southwest, California, Arizona, and well, I think way over in Texas. Um, and um, his, his wife, just due to some personal issues, really needed to move to sunnier climes. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, climes, that's cool. So he, he had some, uh, he had personal reasons to go. Um, so I think he'd been thinking about that for a while anyway. Well, I mean, he, he told me as much. Um, but then I think some tensions that uh, he, um, and I don't think it was he personally, I think he in his position um, was having with some council members was m maybe enough to, you know, get him to leave sooner than he might have otherwise. Um, well, let's, let's talk about a little bit and let's be a little critical for a change and talk about council members. And, you know, three of them, I believe, have been put up on ethics charges. Um, maybe that's a self-serving interest. You know, maybe they're subdividing their lot before certain land issues come in or or whatever. I don't pay attention to that too much. 
I did try to figure out what the ethics board was comprised of, and it's like five volunteers that read read things over when they're brought. But I never hear or see the follow up action to ethics charges on council people. Mm-hmm. And the guy that you're talking about that seemed to bump heads with Doug is one of those guys. Yeah, I don't know why I'm not saying his name, but you can figure it out and do your own due diligence. Um, how do you see that playing out and how does that affect council's ability to work and keep it lighthearted and, and uh, have a trusting relationship with people that, you know, may have done things that are self-serving. Yeah. Um, I, I only think of two council members who've had ethics complaints brought against them. So maybe I'm forgetting one, but anyway. You're not their father, I know. I'm not. And thankfully, I'm not on the ethics board. The last thing in the world I'd want to do is have to deal with that. Just but, try to define the word ethic. That is a debate that can go for hours. Yeah. And um, so I, I applaud the our neighbors here who are on the ethics board and have taken on that responsibility. And the neighbors that are trying to keep everybody accountable too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, everyone who I'm, I'm glad that people feel like they can um, submit an ethics complaint. People should feel like they can do that. So I'm glad some people have, frankly, the ethics board has not had much business. Uh, the first two years I was on council, there was only one, uh, complaint submitted to them, and it's and it's actually it was it was against uh, Val Tollison, but I mean he asked for it. There was a question brought up about a conflict of interest and whether he really had a conflict, and he suggested, well, send it to the ethics board and let's let them decide. I um, mean, they decided he he didn't, but um, that was the only work they'd had up until the last few months when these other complaints have come up. Um, so it's been a I think kind of a learning experience for the folks on that board as well, and. Uh, one of the complaints that's been brought up is about a, an actual um, personal conflict of interest with something. Um, uh, the other uh, complaints that I'm thinking of are what are called um, Article 1 complaints. Um, so Article 1 in our ethics rules um, basically just says, and again, uh, someone should go like research this on their own, because there's a lot more words in there than what I'm going to say. But it basically just says... Hey, uh, as a council member or representative of the city, you, you need to be a civil, nice person. And you can't be a jerk, basically what it says. Um, and so some of these complaints are about, you know, people being a jerk, maybe. Uh, and and that's, uh, that's kind of a hard one, right? Because like to sit on the ethics board and you have to decide, was, was this person a jerk or not? Or were they enough of a jerk to like meet the standard set, set here? Yeah. Well, part of my learning process right now is not to judge people. I don't know what you went through before you walked into Studio 15 today. Yeah. Is like, so I don't know what preceded this to make you casual and comfortable around me or aggravated because your dog died right before you came or something. Yeah. You know, and you still had to come to this commitment. Um, and so that those, those, the, uh, one, um, that was brought against, uh, Councilmember Nassar, um, was dismissed as not having merit. Um, the other three, uh, the ethics board is working through and I expect they will finalize their response to those in the next, uh, I think week or so. And then, um, if, if they find that there's merit to those, then those will come before council in January, probably. And the council will have to decide what to do about it. And that's going to be an awfully uncomfortable and difficult thing for us to deal with. 
How do you personally feel about the Chief Hammer situation in him following Doug and interviewing and saying that uh, Doug provided the opportunity here, he owed him the interview, but he's been somewhat coy or verklempt and not discussing it further. Um, you guys kind of had a situation where you were going to, I don't know if it's an either or, pay the sit new city manager or the police chief with a new contract and you had to discuss those financials and you've given both of those guys or woman and man um, new contracts um, because you value their their ability to perform the jobs that they do. And after giving Chief Hammer a new contract, he's solicited a, a new job position. How does that personally make you feel? You summarized that really well. Thank you. I think uh, I think that how that makes me feel is probably inherent in the way you um, framed that. Um, uh, by the way, just uh, before I wade into that territory, uh, I just want to just give a shout out to uh, Morgan, our our new city manager. I think she's doing a fantastic job. Yeah, I concur. Um, and she, I think she's deserving of that position too, and very intelligent. And I, I, um, I, I really regret that the process of of putting her in that position uh, was difficult and um, kind of ugly. And from an outside perspective, I mean, from an outside perspective, probably kind of ugly and and looked weird. Um, well, what exactly do you regret? I mean, somebody asked for basically a golden parachute, and uh, that's a standard contract negotiation. I I would believe, and not that I'm in the contract business. This is too bad that we we had to have a discussion or two on the dais in public, you know, on something that's kind of so personal to somebody. That's all. Uh, and I respect so that. I tried really hard on the dais to not make it personal. And, and anyway, so but we're through that, and I think she's doing a great job. And she's here now. Yep. And that's a difficult part of being on council is we we most people don't know this, but uh, it is illegal for a majority of the council to talk about something outside of a council meeting. We can't do that. All right. That's why people make this stuff up. <laughs> so, like, we, we literally can't know what the council is going to decide until we walk into a meeting and decide. We can't all talk about it outside of a meeting. And, and, and what I mean, like, we can't. That makes it fair. I can't email two council members and see how they're feeling and then email two others on a different email and see how they're feeling and then email the other two on a different email. That doesn't work. Yeah, that's some Hillary Clinton stuff. That's called a rolling quorum. Right. Ah. So you can't have a rolling quorum, right? Look at that. I'm learning what rolling quorum means. So anyway, that's it was hard to do the council manager um, negotiate. I'm sorry, the city manager negotiations, basically in public. But anyway, yeah. I'll, I'll move on from that. <clears throat> Back uh, off, Kitsap, son. <laughs> the, the, um, I, I, I guess I can't really say a lot about uh, the police chief thing right now. How about this? Do because you we're in the middle of it. Do you foresee him staying? I honestly don't know. Is your hope that he stays? Yes. I think he's done a fabulous job for us. I hope he stays. I think he's very communal too, level-headed. Yeah, that police station, um, he has totally remade. Uh, it's so much better than it was. I, it would be um, a loss if he left. Well said. All right, let's knock out a couple of these questions so we can get, get moving out of here. Um how can the community play catch-up via infrastructure to address the rapid growth? Thank you, Elizabeth. 
How can our community play catch up via infrastructure to address the rapid growth? And I think infrastructure, you know, we just had the yeah, the ballot measure. And that failed. And I'd love to talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so would I. Um maybe we have two conversations, part one and part two. If if yeah, we're time going over, you want me to keep talking? Yeah, I do because it's not at a natural ending here. But um, let me yeah, let's let's get to the mobility levy and talk infrastructure, and we'll we'll leave it at that for t- today and uh, schedule part two for next week. I'd be happy to come back. Awesome. I don't know Appreciate if I can that. next week, but sometime soon. All right. Um, tomorrow it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, um. I'll be at Winter Wonderland if you want to come over. I'll be lighting the tree. I just went to Enchantment at Safeco. That was pretty cool, too. Um, infrastructure. So, infrastructure. We got roads. We got trails. We got boats. We got bicycles. We got uh, mobility issues. We have a bridge to nowhere that never happened. Yeah. People are very divided on this. I, I think the levee was, you know, very close. So, I assume that she's referring to non-motorized infrastructure. And I'll say that because, well, either it's referring to that and maybe she's also referring to the highway. Um, But when we look at city streets, that infrastructure, the road infrastructure for the city, not including the highway, which we obviously we don't control, that's the state. Uh, Our our road infrastructure is really quite good um, in in terms of how that's measured. Level of service standards is the word, LOS, level of service. But there is a false sense of security on, on the shoulders and... Yeah, but just talking about cars, right? Like just car infrastructure. Uh, there's a, a model that was made for the city's um, traffic some years ago. And so you plug into that model all the roads and all the development allowed to current zoning. And you run it and you say if 20 years from now, all the development that's allowed to current zoning has been built, what will the traffic look like on the island? And the answer from that model is there are only going to be three intersections that fail their level of service standards that are like so crappy that people are going to be pissed off because they're waiting in long lines of these intersections. Um, one of them is the uh, Sportsman's Club, uh, New Brooklyn intersection. That's yeah, the reason. A lot of traffic on that road. Really that's is. the reason why the city's putting a roundabout in there. It's not for today's school traffic. It's for 20 years from now when it's all built out, the model shows that that, section is going to fail unless we fix it. So that's why that's in there. So that's a done deal. The roundabout's coming. Uh, we've approved having it designed. Um, so the council will have more discussion about, you know, whether we're going to actually build it. And then is that something that goes to vote for the, with the people or no, that's just, that'll decides? just be a council decision. And so we'll, we'll probably get a lot of, um, concerned folks about that on both sides and that's fine. We I, should, I can see both sides too. You know, like I said, it's only about three minutes for me to get from the roundabout to the 305 or down to High School Road when I pick up my child from school when we have extracurricular activities after school. Um, but I can also see that, you know, we are going to grow. And if we're going to go up to 30,000 soon, you know, Sportsman Club is the highest traffic-driven road on the island. You know, because 305 is, is yeah. like you say, a state yep. issue. Uh, and a lot of folks might not have gotten on to this yet. One of the other intersections that's projected to fail under that track model in 20 years is um, Wyatt and Madison. We're actually going to put a roundabout in there next year. There's going to be a new roundabout there. Wow. Wyatt and Madison. Uh, it's going to be a, a, what's called like, a, I think, a, a mini roundabout. So it won't be as big as the high school one. It'll be a little smaller. But there's going to be a little roundabout in there. 
I wasn't around when all that drama hit, but I heard that was yeah big bone of contention with people on the island. But I li- I live off High School Road. Um, don't come looking for me, listeners. But um, I don't see any problem with it. It works great. Yeah. And before that roundabout went in, that traffic, I know the traffic still gets backed up during, you know, high school drop off and stuff, but it, should. it was much worse before that roundabout. It's a vast improvement. Anyway, uh, so maybe she's speaking about non-motorized transportation or questioning that. Um, I, <laughs> there are lots of theories for why the ballot measure failed. Um, I think it would have passed, but for one thing. Uh, and that is how it was worded in the ballot. Yeah, I thought it was, personally, I thought it was poorly written. And I went to the um, thing down at the uh, Island Center, the informational meeting about it. And I think the first thing that popped up in my mind was specifically where's the money going at, you know, what street, what widening, how big is the sidewalk going to be? How big is the bike lane going to be? Is it a, a false sense of security for me? Because there's certain parameters what I think a side so- sidewalk should be, how much a bike lane should be, and then movement for cars within that space. Now, all of a sudden, the road is extremely wider. And I know that you have you know, nature on each side, right? Yeah. And then you have the Kobe main systems you know, that are getting flushed and, and all that pipe work and uh, the runoff and stuff. And I think it's very complicated. So... I wanted to see specific details in that levy. Um, But I did, you know, if I can put this out there, I did vote for it because I think even though it seemed like it was a million dollars a block and it takes seven years to get barely anywhere, we have to start somewhere. And infrastructure is, is important and it makes quality of life on the island better. And if it was maintaining trails, bike lanes, making more non-motorized accessibility for people and just safety, just walk into your mailbox to get your mail, yeah. not winding up in a ditch. And then all the tragedy that happened on Finch Road and yeah. a couple people that have been hitting crosswalks. And here's my shout out to council. Let's get some reflective crosswalks going, you know, around the high school and high traffic areas because fog, sunlight, daylight savings time, um, the goth look is still in where nobody's, nobody's wearing reflective stuff. That's interesting. No one's ever suggested that to me before. Uh, you know, I, I'm around the schools. I, I live here because it's a very walkable island. I, I prefer not to be in my vehicle. Yeah. But when I am in the vehicle, I, I do have sight problems at times. And then there's some kid in black hoodie with black pants and black shoes and not even looking, just assuming the cars. And a, a few old ladies got hit, you know, in, in crosswalks on the island last year. So. Yeah. Um, well, I, I feel similarly to everything you just said on the ballot measure. Um, certainly, uh, there are some people who didn't vote for it because of what you just referenced. It, was, it, it didn't have specifics. Um, I think a lot of people didn't understand. There is a very specific non-motorized transportation plan for the island. Uh, it's a big, long chapter and a big, long document. Um, very dry. Uh, so there, there is a plan. And the council did pass a resolution that said, hey, if, if, if this ballot measure is approved, here are samples of what we might spend it on. Um, and <clears throat> we had to choose. Do we say we're going to spend it on exactly these things? Or do we say, uh, you know, here's examples of what we're, we're going to spend it on. That was a decision. And a reason to say, specify exactly 
uh, is to put to bed um, concerns like what what you've raised, right? Um, but on the other side, um, if we had specified everything, there would have been people who said, well, I don't care about that crap. I'm not going to vote for it. Yeah, it goes back to being inclusive, right? Yeah. Like if you put something down in the North End, the South people aren't up for it, right? So there's that issue, right? If you specify, you give – so it's that issue of there are people who's like, well, there's nothing in my neighborhood. I'm not going to vote for it. And you give people something to hate. Right, like ballot measures um, often fail because there's stuff in there that um, some people really don't like, so they organize a resistance to it. So if you specify, then there's there's stuff for haters to hate, and you get you know worked up about. Uh, also, if you specify, then you got to deliver. And Seattle passed a ballot measure a few years ago, fourteen or fifteen, two thousand fourteen or fifteen, that specified what they were going to do over there, a non motorized ballot measure. And they ended up not having enough money to do it all. And that caused a big uproar over there. Because the last thing position you want to be in as a city is to say, we promise we can, we're going to build you all this. Sorry. Yeah. We're not going to do it. You don't want to bore a tunnel and then have Big Bertha stuck in it for a year. And now the school district's in that position, right? They got a ballot measure passed that said they're going to build these schools and all this new stuff at the high school. And it turns out they don't have money to do it all. So there's going to be a ballot measure in February asking for another $15 million from people to pay for stuff they thought they'd already bought. But I hit the click-a-thon. <laughs> and I hope people support that ballot measure, but you know, I didn't want the city to be in that position, right? Right. So there are pros and cons. And, and then that's kind of like the the bridge. You know, you had X amount of money to build that over the highway, but then you didn't have enough to build the bridge. And if you didn't get all that funding, we'd be in a huge hole. And how many people would really use that bridge? So there's a lot of determining factors. You got a tough job, man. And there is some fear that some people voiced uh, that, well, if we approve the ballot measure, they're going to use the money to build the bridge, which I just, for the record, the bridge is no longer even in the city's plans. It's not even there. Right. It's like it's gone. Like it it's never dead. existed. <laughs> um, but on the ballot measure, just back to what I want to say, I just want to get it out there. And if people disagree, you're like, let me know. Um, I, I think it, remember it, it, it failed barely 46% of people voted for it. Um, when I opened my ballot in my house to vote, I was voting and I got to our ballot measure and I, I literally just had this sense of dread when I read our ballot measure because it was, it was just a bunch of legal gobbledygook. Uh, and I, I failed there. Like I did not understand that this legal garbage language we had at the top of our resolution approving this was just going to be put right on the ballot. So what was clear from that, that legalese was raise your property taxes. What was not clear was what the hell we were going to do with it. The words non-motorized improvements were buried in the middle of it, but there was no mention of bike shoulders, sidewalks, yep. safe trails to school. Yep. There was no mention of that anywhere in that language. And that we hired a consultant to come up with a title for it. So we have this cute title, you know, the safe mobility levy. Uh, I think a better title just would have been what it is, right? Bike shoulders, safe Side trails works, to yeah. school, yeah. sidewalks. Yep. Just made that the title and, and made the language to explain that's what it was. And I am confident it would have passed because most people who vote um, they don't go and do research on stuff. They just get their ballot. And if they're, if they're usually vote Democrat, they just vote for all the Democrats. And if they usually vote Republican, they vote for all the Republicans. And they get to the ballot measures and they're just like, well, uh, I don't know, sounds good or mm -hmm. sounds not good. 
I'm for guns, against guns. Yeah. Right. But yet that's 13 pages or 31 pages of information there that gives you the details. Most people don't pay attention to it. And so I, I, I think we just screwed up in the language and it would have passed, but for that. All right. Um, no, I think I'm going to stick this out for a little bit if you got time to spare. Oh, you want to keep talking? Yeah, I do. Because you already missed your deadline, you think? Yeah, I think so. All right. Um, uh, here we go. Erica writes in, how and when can we get cleaner power generated instead of using this, the current 60% fossil fuels? I think that's even fuel shipped in from another state, correct? Montana. Yeehaw. Yep. Um. That's a great question. Joe Dietz, where are you? <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't have a, a good answer to that. Obviously, we, we as a city looked into taking over the municipal um, electric service ourselves, uh, and that that... Um, Not feasible. I mean, it's feasible, and in the long run, might have saved money for, for the ratepayers on the island might have saved money and given us control of our, our own electricity, would have all been hydropower 100% and could have given us the potential to, you know, invest in our own stuff, invest in our own solar power as a city and wind power maybe. Uh, but it was a, it was a big might. Um, it would have been a big gamble. And most of the people we heard from a clear majority hated the idea, just attested the idea. Well, you would have to buy all the equipment fresh right and yeah, that's yeah. a huge yeah. outpour of money just to get started that's right and but, but you bond it right so you, mm. you you bond um against the future um income you have from people paying for the electricity right um so you you buy it all up front and then you got to pay off these bonds the the beautiful thing about it is um once those bonds are paid off well, well boom suddenly your power is a lot cheaper because your electricity, your your municipal um, electric utility is no longer paying those bonds, so your power rates are going to go down because we don't have to pay that anymore. So long term, it would have been cheaper. Um, but uh, for some many people, the idea of the city being in charge of something as crucial as power was just a no go for them, which I totally understand. So anyway, that was one answer to her question, but that that's not going to happen. At least I don't think it's going to happen. Let Let me add to that question. How do you, uh, what are the possibilities of farming solar? Like maybe teaming up with friends of the farm and putting sol- solar panel panels out in some of that communal um, pea patch and garden space. And then also writing up maybe something to the agricultural code, like that huge clear cut in sands. Now that all that light is present, could we have enforced some type of a rule or guideline, law, whatever you want to call it that says, you have to put X amount of solar panels up if you're going to have that much agricultural space. You can tell me if that's a good idea or a bad idea. Well, no, there's um, a few. There's a few ways to answer that. So, um, I, I'm not an expert in uh, solar power and the laws around solar power. Um, uh, I would be surprised if there weren't, you know, some way to create a city-owned solar farm. I believe it has been done in some other cities around the state. So I think that is possible. Um, it would take some capital to get that started, right? That's the the hard thing about solar is it's all upfront capital costs. Um, so, so somehow we'd have to get the capital to do it. Um, and I've just, 
I don't while I've been on council, no one's you know brought forward a proposal for how to do that. What about windmills in the in the water? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I I that I don't know. I mean, I've never thought about that. Um, there's also tidal power, uh, something people working on off the coast. So it's it's below the waves, not above the waves, right? The water washing mm-hmm. in and out. Like if you can get some tidal power generators in Agate Pass with the speed the water runs through there, um, that would generate some electricity. I think when you're trying to do anything in the water, um, the environmental oversight, the permitting just becomes like crushing weight because um, you'd have to go through state and federal regulators to do any of that. Yeah, but we uh, pound pilings in for docks, right? Yeah. And we could pile, drive a windmill into the water just as easily or attach it to the dock even. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I haven't looked into that. I, I don't know that this area is windy enough, maybe. I mean, I don't, see, I don't see any windmills around here. Like, maybe we just don't have enough constant wind to make it pencil out. Um, I don't have any good answers to her question, but the council is next year in the first quarter going to take up a discussion about uh, whether we might want to amend our codes to do just what you suggested, to require new developments to have some solar power on them. Um, and maybe just start with uh, commercial developments. Yeah, m- municipalities, you know, schools and courthouse yeah. and police yeah. Yep, can start with all the governmental jurisdictions, require them to install solar. How hard would it be to put it on the top of the fire stations? You know? I, and I think it'd have to be when they build something new, right? So right. They, they can work it into their budget for that. Um, but I think I think we, I don't know the, law, the legalities of whether we could force all new development on the island to install solar power or not. Just throwing things out, see what sticks. Yep, but I'm sure the people making that farm on sands would not want to cover their farm with a bunch of solar panels. Yeah, I didn't want them to cut all those trees down. Yeah, I didn't either. All right, let's, you said the the B word there, so let's talk about the new budget. Okay, uh, what do we got in store in the new budget? <clears throat> um, I don't, uh, I don't know if there's any surprises. The city's kind of core operating budget's about twenty five million dollars, give or take a little bit. Um, the total budget for next year is more like forty five to fifty million. Um, but the, the just kind of general operation budget, it's about $25 million. And when you add on top of that, the utilities, the sewer utility and the water utility and the stormwater utility, that adds a lot. And then you add on our capital improvement plan, and that adds a bunch too. That's how you get to the 45 to 50. But just operating budget for the city is about $25 million. Uh, it's The budget's mainly the same as it was or is this year. Um, we added a few new positions, two new police officers, uh, which should get the police force um, kind of entirely built out to a, uh, an efficient model. Um, <clears throat> so we shouldn't be seeing new officers added there anytime in the near future. Uh, added a couple positions in planning, uh, including a hydrologist, um, which I think our city needs. That's a topic. If you do have me back someday, we could talk about groundwater. That's oh, a big topic. Yeah, let's talk about aquifers and critical area ordinance and monitor- monetarium-toriums. Is that the word? Moratorium. Moratorium. Going to the... <clears throat> um, so, but there are a couple things in the budget. Uh, we got money in there for a groundwater management plan, which I think is really important. Um, believe it or not, this is a, you know, as an island that gets all its water from the ground, we don't have a groundwater management plan for that. Looking at long term. We've done a lot of work around that, but we haven't pulled together a plan. So I'm, I'm happy we're moving in that direction. 
that that hits hits me hard is the the aquifer science. Yeah. I guess that's one thing that I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around s- still. Who designed the aquifer um, science that city council went on and based it? And is it correct science? Mm-hmm. And do you feel like that that can have an adjustment one way or the other? Um, when, you, when you ask if it can be adjusted, what's the it? The, the aquifer science. Like, is, is it a true like hydrologist? Is that the term that you use? Yeah. Who's, who's an expert in aquifers and what study is, uh, I don't know how to phrase this question, but it seems like the science behind it, in my estimation, was a little faulty and not from an expert source. And I would like to have a de- definitive answer if we have an aquifer, aquifer problem here on the island or, or we don't. Mm-hmm. So it's a complicated area. So my answer is going to be a little complicated, but that's good. It's it's a mess right now in my head. So so I, like I mean, I'll say some stuff that hopefully is helpful to you and your listeners. Um, <clears throat> so I studied hydrology and geology in in college. So I have some some personal understanding and familiarity with this. I'm I'm not in any way claiming to be a hydrogeologist, but lay it on us more than your kind of regular person. I actually studied this in school. Um, so, um, uh, hydrology and groundwater science, in my opinion, um, is far from an exact science. I mean, of course it is. We're talking about stuff that's hundred of feet under the ground. We, no one can actually go down and see it. Um, so it, it can't be exact. Uh, but, um, there's a lot of science around it. And there's a lot that can be known. Uh, and so we have done, a, we have had a number of studies done for the island over the last 10 or so years. Uh, those studies have been done by um, experts who are as, as good as any experts in this. There aren't better experts, I, I believe. Um, one of the studies, or at least maybe more than one, was done by the federal government, the United States Geological Service, so the USGS. Um, that's what they do. They're the experts in this. Um, uh, the most recent study was done by Aspect Consulting, uh, which was it was paid for by the city. Um, this is what they do. They they have hydrogeologists on staff. They do these modeling and these studies. <clears throat> I think there's much an expert in this as anybody could be. Uh, but um, I, I think uh, they would uh, say, uh, I, I think they would agree with what I'm saying, that it's not an exact science, right? Um, you, you can do your best to create models around how the aquifers work, but you can't know for, for certainty. And so that's, that's one of my, um, that's one of the reasons why I think we need to pay a lot of attention to our groundwater because it's not exact. Um, we do our best or they do their best to model it, but it's not exact. And in the last study that was done, by aspect, maybe four years ago, give or take a year. Um, they they basically said what USGS had said. You guys got plenty of water. We got a lot of water that falls in rain on this island. And we got a large land mass on this island compared to the population. So it's a lot of water that falls on the land. And in their model, I mean the modeling, they 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 model how much just runs off into the sound and how much uh, goes into the ground and is sucked up by plants and goes away through um, perspiration out of plants. 
uh, and they model how much just goes down into the aquifers. So it's all modeling, right? No one can actually go and know all that for sure. Uh, but based on that model, they say, look you, get, look, you got plenty of water. Like, I don't remember the exact numbers, but, you know, it's like you get 50 billion gallons of water a year that goes into your aquifer and, you know, you only use 2 billion gallons a year, you humans. Those aren't the right numbers, but it's something like that. Um, but Aspect said, yeah, you got plenty of water, but hey, look, um, there's still stuff we need to study. There's stuff um, that to really understand this better and have more certainty, you need to study more. Uh, one of their findings was 20 years from now, or maybe it's 25, but sometime in the, kind of that time range, uh, according to their model, kind of the middle scenario in their model, like their models, right? You can run them with different inputs and you'll get different answers, but kind of the, the most likely scenario shows that in 20 or 25 years from now, uh, our streams will have 40% less water in them. That's because stream flow is directly related to groundwater. That water you see in the streams, unless it's just been a big storm that dumped a bunch of water, between storms, that water you see in streams, is st water's just coming out of the ground. It's just your groundwater that shows up in the stream. And so they believe, under the most likely scenario, we'll have 40% less water in our streams, which also means 40% water in our wetlands. So we will have fewer wetlands and lower streams. Well, that's concerning to me, right? Um, that shows that something is changing and not in a good way in terms of water. Uh, and so they think that should be studied more. And the other um, really concerning thing to me is climate change. And they mentioned this in their report as well. And they say, like, well, we don't know what's going to happen with climate change. And climate change could just totally screw our model because um, we don't really know how to model that, right? Um, they make some guesses about how to model that just based on current science, but no one really knows. One thing that science believes and that we're seeing already is we're going to have drier summers, right? We're already seeing that. Um, and that means two things. It means less water going in the aquifer during many months of the year, while at the same time more water is coming out of the aquifer because more people are watering their lawns and all that stuff, right? So less going in, more coming out in the summers. And climate change modeling also shows that we're going to have bigger storms. We won't have... The modeling for our area is that we won't have less rain overall, but that that rain will come in bigger chunks. Instead of our Seattle, like two weeks of you know light rain and mist, we're going to have uh, one day of a deluge delivering the same amount of rain as that two weeks. When rain comes that way, uh, a really significantly higher part of it just runs off into the sound. It doesn't go on the ground. So the so they say in their aspect study, like, you know, that's an issue and we haven't really modeled well for that. You guys need to keep studying that. So sorry, that's kind of a long answer, but um, those are the reasons why we don't have any, I believe, we, we don't have any sort of groundwater emergency. We have plenty of groundwater for what we're doing now um, and for growing some amount in the future. Uh, but as the climate changes, um, we need to uh, pay as much attention as we can to our groundwater and make sure we're really monitoring it and that we really have a plan in place to make sure that um, we use it as fastidiously as possible uh, so that we still have no groundwater problem four generations from now. And, you know, if we're just thinking about one generation from now, well, we don't need a groundwater management plan for that. It's going to be fine. There might be some problem areas here or there. Like the south end of the island doesn't have the same aquifers we have on the rest of the island. 
Um, so the, there have been some limited problems in places, but for the most part, we'll have plenty of water generation from now. But if you want to think long term, four or five generations, we have to act now to make sure that we're going to be okay then. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, that's very articulate. I'm going to hit you again, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Creosote Park and the Superfund. Talk about long answer and not success in my mind. Um, it seems like nobody's ever actively working out there. And, you know, there's actually creosote railroad ties on the beach right next to it. And it's going on, going to 30 years. It's like, why don't you pick up the the log with the creosote right in front of the project within the 30 years that you've been working on it? And why do I see nobody alive working on that? And then I see the seawall is kind of like a, a fake steel or aluminum seawall that's just rusting out. And when I walk the beach down there, and it's a great area too, it's nothing but dead sea life washing up. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really concerning to me. And it, on the other side of Cali Cove there, on the other side of the ferry, you know, I see these these clams that are just on steroids. And I'm wondering like, why one side of the ferry terminal is dying rapidly and then the other side's growing huge two-part question what's the plan for that site and how do we manage that and improve it is it under our jurisdiction or a state type thing and secondly i know the the ferry system is has put in their 10-year plan for the new infrastructure what kind of fuel upgrades does that include are they using the cleanest fuel because that's that area is in and out in and out and off the spit there, there's some decent salmon fishing. And, you know, I just would like that area, since it's so highly traveled and part of my environment and part of my community, I would like to see that area cleaned up. <clears throat> yeah, you should be concerned about the Superfund site. <clears throat> I think it's kind of a forgotten thing for, by a lot of people. Did you use the word Superfund when you're talking? To, yeah. I don't know. Well, it is a Superfund site. I mean, a national Superfund site. Um, And it's very complicated, uh, more complicated, frankly, than I understand. I've been briefed on it a few times. Um, There's there's like three zones out there that it's kind of divided into, and and one of them is the beach zone, and that a few years ago was capped. Um, But under that cap, um, if I understand correctly, um, is some nasty stuff. Uh, and I think that that nasty stuff um, uh, somehow leaks out a bit from time to time on the beach. I would tend to agree 100% it leaks. Yeah. Um, and then the main site is, you know, behind that 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 really fancy steel wall you're talking about. <clears throat> um, that's been capped as well. Uh, but the permanent solution for that hasn't happened yet. Uh, the uh, EPA, so the city owns the property, but the city is not, as, as I understand it, and I could be a little off here. The city, when they when we when we accepted ownership of the property, did not accept um, responsibility for the liability of cleaning it up. That is still an EPA issue and a state issue. Um, they still need to clean that up. There's no way the city could ever afford to clean it up, and we're talking tens, hundreds, millions of dollars to really clean that up. Uh, so I think last year, maybe, um, the EPA finished, or maybe it was earlier this year, a uh, new study of how the nasty gunk uh, is um, living there in that 
that main piece of it with the wall. Uh, and it's not, it's not good. Um, that study showed that, uh, some of that stuff is starting to leak down farther. There's like a, uh, a, a layer of, I, th I think it's a natural layer. Um, what's the word for it? An aquitard in there. So, uh, like a layer of clay that, uh, stuff, um, liquid stuff can't move through. Um, but I think they found there's some holes in there <clears throat> and it's possible that some of that nasty stuff is finding its way through this. And if it gets down in there and keeps going, it's going to be in our aquifers down there. So you should be concerned about it. What uh, can I do as a citizen to push buttons? <clears throat> so as getting this study done, the EPA, I think now has a plan in place for, for actually cleaning that up. Um, I don't remember exactly what the plan is. I've heard of different types of plans. Um, but I, you know, don't quote me on the numbers, but but it would cost tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to do that cleanup. And I, I think uh, they are just waiting to actually get the funding from the federal government to do that. Um, so I think the plan's there. They just need the money. Um, so we as citizens need to, I'm not sure who you, who you lobby, um, lobby your your local congressional representatives and your your federal senators to um, appropriate the money um, into the federal budget to do that cleanup. Was that in uh, Hillary Franz's? No, Hillary's, Hillary's state level. Um, so she's the commissioner of public lands on the state level. So like Derek Kilmer's our local representative, and then you know Patty um, Murray. Thank you. I almost said Patty Lent. <laughs> Patty Murray and Maria Cantwell are senators. So lobby them to get some money in the budget. But, you know, the current administration doesn't place a lot of, um, what, a lot of priority on getting stuff like this done. Hey, Jay Inslee, <clears throat> talking to you. Come to my defense. Come to all of our defense. Um, what else we got here? Oh, um, development impact fees. Do they actually pay for the development and how do they compare to other regional cities. Thank you, John. Thank you, George. Yeah, uh, I'm not not an expert in that. Um, there are different types of development impact fees. Um, we do levy most of them, if not all of them. There might be one that we aren't using here, but I don't remember for sure. Um, so I think that we are levying most development impact fees as fully as we can. Um, but I, I could be wrong on that. Um, by the way, I should tell you, you know, for some specific questions like this, like if you want to follow up and shoot me an email, I don't know if you ever follow up with your listeners, but... Um, Absolutely, I'm here to help. Then, you know, shoot me an email with some things like that are very specific, and I can just send that off to city staff and they'll give me a clear answer. But I, I think generally our development impact fees are commensurate with what most cities are doing. Um, and those fees... Uh, they just, I don't, I don't think that they're, this is just my opinion now. Um, what was all the other things you said? Yeah, right. <laughs> Absolute fact. <laughs> oh yeah. Everything I've said is a total fact here. Um, I, I, my, okay. My impression is those fees, um, don't always correlate as directly with like actually mitigating the impacts of a development as you would hope they do. Right. And. Yeah, that drives me nuts. Uh, every saying, every time I hear Creosote Park or development trigger words, but developments like the one down there um, on Finch and stuff, why wasn't it mandated to put sidewalk improvements at least in their portion to think about 
the future. If they've gotten that zoning and developmental rights to build these big houses, why can't they say, well, yeah. the length of this property, I'm going to put a bike lane, yeah. uh, sidewalk. We do do that. So in our, so the city has a transportation, and it's called the Island-Wide Transportation Plan, the IWTP. Uh, chapter six in that Island-Wide Transportation Plan is the non-motorized transportation plan. Uh, that chapter, I believe it's that chapter, uh, details everywhere on the island where um, we have planned for bike shoulders or sidewalks. And then you tie that, that's tied into city code that requires any development, um, I think above a single family residence. This might not apply to a single family residence, but like a larger development. If a larger development is fronting on a road that that plan says has a, is, needs to have a bike shoulder or a sidewalk, then they have to build it. So on Finch, uh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, I don't see them building sidewalks. So it must be that our island-wide transportation plan does not call for sidewalks there. Okay, let's put that on the to-do list. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, you know, it's an interesting question on this island. Do we want sidewalks everywhere? Where do we stop the sidewalks? Because once you start building sidewalks, it doesn't feel like a quaint rural place anymore. Well, I think in um, densified areas, you know, where where there's a lot of people, the walkable area, I guess, yeah. like the infrastructure around the schools, the library, the pool, um, the shopping center, downtown Winslow. There was a huge project downtown to get sidewalk and parking improvements a few years back. Um, I think it's it's still quaint if it's filled with people actually using those sidewalks and those bike lanes. You know, I'd like to see something on personally on the, the come up from Eagle Harbor there, mm-hmm. um, around that corner, and and make a little bit of space because I know there's a lot of bicyclists from the south end yep. coming to catch that ferry, and mm-hmm. it's not an easy bike ride, you know, and a little wobble and there's fog and and, and it's a, kind of a low marine area there. And That's a dangerous place. Yeah, I'd like to start something right there. You know, push over to the Eli's. Fa- flowers or whatever that is on the stand because there's a lot of gravel on the opposite side but and now there's a lot more traffic at that garage as well so there's a little bit of stop wait and be very careful coming around that that corner yeah anything you want to ask me oh uh Guess not. I feel kind of spent. I didn't, I didn't realize we'd be talking for two hours. Yeah, I, I knew you could last. There's uh-huh. no city council session. Um, somebody asked, "What is the? Why did we incorporate? And can we unincorporate? Um, what are the advantages of one or the other?" I um, I'll answer that. But I just remembered a very important thing. Uh, I got to be home by 515 because my wife has to leave tonight and go to something. (laughs) So we're going to make this the last one. Um, And uh, I live all the way at the north end of the island. I don't know. I get past. So I I get to be stuck in that traffic uh, at at night in the evening. And why don't I do something about that, Cole? I get asked that a lot. That's a whole other subject we could talk about. Anyway, uh, so the question was, um, why did we incorporate? How can we unincorporate? Was that basically the question? Yeah, and what are the advantages of one over the other? So the incorporation happened back in 1992 or 93. I wasn't living here at the time. Um, My understanding 
from what people have said to me about uh, the reasoning for that. Um, and folks might remember it was a really close vote. Like it wasn't even 51% of the vote. It was like 50 point something percent of the vote. So it was tight. I had heard a story the other day from Ian Ritchie um, that before the police department only could rule downtown Winslow. That's right. And they came from Port Orchard or Bremerton or something like that. Right. Yeah. Is that part of the reason why the yeah. corporation happened? Yeah. The, the reason why it happened, or <clears throat> at least the reason I've been told, is because uh, people didn't feel they were getting the service they needed from the county. So before we incorporated the whole island, uh, if you didn't live in Winslow, uh, your police protection came from the county, county police, county sheriff. Uh, your, um, I assume this was true for fire as well. I assume the fire district on the island happened after the incorporation, but I might, I might be wrong on that. Um, and a big issue was land use. Uh, so before we incorporated, everything outside of Winslow, um, the land use that could happen there, that was all controlled by the county. So that was controlled by the county commissioners and the, a planning department down in Port Orchard. So you think it's hard to get a permit now, like before you, you had to go down to Port Orchard to get your permit. So stuff like that, um, lack of local control is what led people to do this. Um, obviously it, it wasn't um, an overwhelming vote though. There were mixed feelings about it. Uh, to unincorporate, um, you just do the same thing. I think you just have to have a, someone's got to get it on the ballot and have a vote for it. I, I don't think anyone believes there would be any chance that would pass now. Um, a random point for you that I almost mentioned earlier. Um, the fact that we have incorporated the whole island actually makes it um, difficult for our city government to function well uh, because... When we incorporated the whole island, we inherited this huge roadway. You know, most cities uh, only include densely populated areas. They don't include a bunch of rural stuff, right? So most cities don't have to include in their budget providing services, you know, for this huge roadway. Um, and we do. And that, that makes our budget a little more difficult. Um, maybe that's enough answer to that question. All right. I'm going to ask you, I got a little segment I want to do with you called the Fast Five. You up okay. for it? Sure. All right. Fast Five, um, sponsored by Eagle Harbor Insurance. Thank you, Tom Sawyer. Favorite restaurant on the island? Well, it was Tweez. I'm really heartbroken. That was my Monday spot. Yeah. I got five Monday there. That was my Saturday spot. Uh, so if it's Come not... back, Tweez. Yeah, please. Okay. Um, favorite place to get coffee? Do you drink coffee? I'm not a coffee drinker. Do you drink tea? I'm mainly a soda guy. You know they're raping the water, right? Pepsi and Coca-Cola. Yeah, and they're also like destroying my insides. You know? Yeah, let's get, let's get, get you off that. Is there any soda helpers out there? Um, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Uh, I just dropped a bomb there. Yeah, I've never thought about that. One superpower. Well, uh... This uh, this first thing that pops into my head. Uh, it'd be really cool if I could fly. That would be fun. Favorite trail on the island? Uh, I guess it's the Grand Forest. That's not a very uh, unique answer, but that's my answer. Yeah, we're here. We're cutting that out for the affordable housing soon. Is that what I heard? That's why we bought that years ago, so we could build housing. Um, last question: Would you be open to? Rickshaws by the ferry or 
bicycle share program on the island. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Cole Medina, thank you for your time. It was a pleasure making your acquaintance. I look forward to seeing you again and talking to you soon. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Bystander. Be kind. Break it down. <laughs>